This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. And I'm super excited today to be talking to Lena Tenenbaum, a partner at top activist defense law firm Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz. Lena spent much of her career in M&A and now leads shelter activism defense efforts at Wachtell. She was named a member of the Deals, top woman in dealmaking, and she was named Dealmaker of the Year by American Lawyer for her work advising Kansas City Southern as it faced a bidding battle from Canadian National and Canadian Pacific Railroad, something we wrote a number of articles about here at The Deal. In the activism world, she has been involved in many high-profile situations involving top-level activists, Elliot, Starboard, Icon, and others, and she has done her fair share of responding to unsolicited takeover offers from her very first matter representing Vulcan Materials, which faced a Martin Marietta proxy fight and tender offer. Most recently, she worked at National Instruments in its response and sale to Emerson Electric. She received an AB magna cum laude in economics from Harvard University and completed a JD from Yale Law School, where she served as editor-in-chief of the Yale Journal on Regulation. Wow. Thanks, Lena, for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Okay. So today, I want to talk about one subject that I've has always been curious about and, and never really delved into my, much detail. And that is all the different ways confidentially sharing information and activism intersect. And I understand that it's a particular area of interest for you as well. But before getting to that, let's take a step back. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what drew you to the world of activist investing and what excites you about this topic in particular. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm a huge fan. I am very fortunate to get to practice activism, preparedness, and defense at Wachtell. Because the way Wachtell does it is unlike any firm out there. I think you probably know a lot about our firm, but we do not view activism defense as this separate practice group that operates in a vacuum, right? Our whole firm is very committed to whatever boardroom issue a company is facing. And we just work as one big team to resolve them, whatever they are. And very often that is activism. And one thing that I find you know, really humbling yep. is I've looked at decks that are 20 years old that we have on our system talking about what are the best bits of advice on how to handle an activist situation or whatever it was called back in the day, raiders. And it's absolutely stunning how much everything we were saying back then still holds true today. So even though we always talk about all the things that are changing and the evolving tactics, the truth is the very basic principles of preparedness and getting to know your shareholders and staying calm under pressure, they're all still very true today. But I'm so excited to talk about NDAs because we all have our hero origin stories. And for me, I came to appreciate the power of NDAs when I had been at Wachtell for less than a month. As you mentioned, one of my very first matters, I worked on defending Vulcan Materials Company when Mark Marietta made a $5 billion all-stock offer to take it over. And mm-hmm. when you have my practice area, you, know, you may have seen some of these charts, so may of your listeners. When we work on preparedness, we often show our clients a chart that shows how activists and hostile bidders can escalate their aggression. And on the most friendly side, shows a private approach, and maybe it escalates to some public overture. But the most aggressive thing is a tender offer and a proxy fight. And this matter 
Vulcan, from day one, it was the most escalated form of corporate aggression that I honestly don't think we've seen anything quite like it since without any notice. And the reason that it's staggering and why it relates to today's subject is that the reason Martin Marietta was not able to actually pursue its proxy fight is because of confidentiality agreements. And there was a 138-page opinion by then-Chancellor Leo Strine, who is a colleague of mine at Wachtell now. And he held, much to the surprise of many corporate lawyers, that even though there were these confidentiality agreements between Martin Marietta and Vulcan Materials, even though there was no express standstill, Martin Marietta misused Vulcan's information in support of its bid. And so the court Ah. entirely enjoyed their ability to run a proxy fight. And this was a huge and very surprising victory. Just like, you know, you talk all the time about what is a Delaware court willing to do? And there was real surprise that a Delaware court would enjoin a premium takeover offer over a contract. And Mm -hmm. that is when I realized that even though NDAs are often treated as some sort of perfunctory document, you just get the lawyers in a room. They're very powerful. They're critically important. And shifting to activism, right from a tactical perspective, they set the tone for an entire situation because they're usually one of the first documents that gets negotiated. And I can't tell you how many times you're talking about a simple NDA, but it's a testing of power dynamics and assessing leverage. So I'm really just a fangirl of this, <laughs> this agreement. Yeah, yeah, no, this increasingly is something that I'm becoming more and more fascinated about. And it just, it just for our more layman uh, audience members, so they make sure they understand, NDAs are non-disclosure agreements. And I think we may also be talking about another acronym that gets thrown around in, the, in this world, MNPI, Material Non-Public Information, which sounds like the hostile bidder that you were talking about, Marietta, I guess was taking advantage of some MNPI, Material Non-Public Information maybe they shouldn't have been using in their hostile bid. But okay, so I want to talk about these agreements in the context of activist investors. You know, I don't really think many of our listeners really think of these confidential agreements as the juiciest part of activist battles. And I've increasingly begun to learn that in many cases, if there's a settlement agreement between an activist and a company, there could just be one line, you know, describing that there was an NDA in the settlement agreement, or in some cases, it's not even disclosed at all. In other cases, I've heard that you know, there's a lot of detail. And as a reporter, I guess I'm increasingly want to know how long the NDAs are drafted for. I know activists like to keep it short. I suspect companies want to keep them longer. I know that activists will sometimes will jump at signing an NDA. Other times they will push back, you know, rejected, worry it's a ploy to restrict their ability to speak publicly or trade. And they get, in some cases, they, where they sign the NDA and they get very little information in return. In, in other cases, I think it could be something that's quite useful to an activist who's maybe wants the company to launch an auction and then they sign an NDA and they realize that the company has actually privately doing that. So maybe they don't need to launch a proxy fight because the company's doing exactly what they want. But anyway, just tell me a little bit about more about NDAs and how they work. Absolutely. There's a lot there and it's really, to your point, you know, sometimes a confidentiality agreement will have a provision that says the existence of the confidentiality agreement is secret. So you may never know about that. And 
let me take one step back, right? So beginning of an engagement, you know, what does any activist really want? They want to be able to apply the most amount of pressure on a public company to listen to what it has to say. And in order to do that, it wants to be able to preserve the ability to run a proxy fight. And this is why activists and their counsel, they see a lot of ghosts from this Vulcan Martin Marietta case. And they're very nervous about signing any piece of paper that could possibly restrict their ability to nominate directors. And that becomes one of the first conversations you have. And so what you're talking about, which is something that happens all the time, is let's just take a really concrete fact pattern where you're a company, you're about to announce earnings, and the activist comes knocking on your door and says, Hey, I've got some ideas to tell you how you can, in fact, improve them. We know your shareholders. We will give you some great advice. Why don't you share that earnings release with us before you release it? And of course, for that, we need a confidentiality agreement. And this is very, very tricky from a company's perspective, right? Because with earnings releases, as you said, the activist is very nervous about getting any information in a draft that isn't ultimately going to be released to the public because then they won't be able to trade. And activists are hedge funds after all. And so there is always a back and forth in these agreements and negotiations of, well, what kind of information are you going to give me? And can you guarantee company that on the earnings date, you're going to tell the whole world everything you've told me so that I can trade? And so that's a big conversation that gets done. But the other thing that you've said, which I think is a really good point, and it can be really frustrating for public companies because... The activist has an idea, right, about what the company is doing wrong. They have a thesis. They have an investment thesis. And the company may want to say, wait, we're not actually doing that wrong. We're doing it right. And wouldn't it be great if we could just tell you so that you don't have to, in fact, spend all this money, make us spend all this money, disrupt our company, disrupt our strategy. Let us just tell you what we want to do. And the activists, they don't want to know because it might restrict them from trading. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard because in some ways, the company is in this situation with one hand tied behind its back because it can't tell the activists it's doing the right thing and it can't tell the other shareholders. And you said it's the most concrete example, which is what if the activist thesis is you should sell yourself or you should sell Mm -hmm. a business unit. Mm -hmm. And if the board has actually tried to do that, and did not get any offers. Imagine how damaging it would be to have to publicly disclose, well, we tried to sell ourselves and no one wants to buy us, right? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there is often this disconnect between the information that the company has that explains why it is or isn't doing something and its ability to actually share that information with an activist that's threatening to replace all the directors unless they do the thing. Okay. So I want to, I mean, it's fascinating because I, I could see situations where the activist would benefit a lot by signing an NDA and getting access to corporate information. But I've also heard situations where they've been burned and they are in there. They don't have useful information. They can't trade. They can't speak publicly about right. it. So you can see it's kind of a, a difficult, sometimes it's a difficult decision, I think, for the activist to make. But I guess I And that's why talk. they say, let's get me in the boardroom, because you're right. I can't know what's going on inside. You can't share it with me. But this is why I need someone that I trust inside your boardroom to get that information. Okay. 
So let's talk about the getting in the boardroom and signing NDAs because it's such a fascinating subject and there are so many different permutations with how activists get their own directors in the boardroom, you know, people that work at their fund, they get outside people in the boardroom and how that relates to NDAs. So I wanted to just bring up that last month, a Delaware Court of Chantry judge ordered companies controlled by Carl Icahn to remove confidential information from a lawsuit against DNA sequencing company Illumina related to a controversial $8 billion purchase of Grail. This is something you know, Icon launched a campaign about. And this was an issue with information provided by Carl Icon deputy, an employee, or I guess the question at the court is, is he an employee or principal? But an employee, it's deputy Andrew Tenno, who was elected to Illumina's board in an election that went the distance in May. The key terms here that we have to talk about is that it went the distance. It wasn't a settlement. It went the distance and he got on the board. And I know they're appealing this case, and I know you can't talk about this situation specifically, but generally, can you talk a little about what information a director nominated by an activist that is elected to a corporate board in an election that goes a distance can provide back to the activist? And let's first talk about the situation where the activist fund employee gets elected in a contest that goes a distance. There are typically no NDAs signed when the activist gets on a board in a contest that goes a distance, right? Right. And I'm so glad you asked me this because it's something I just want to make sure that your listeners understand. If an activist insider wins a proxy contest and gets elected, that person will be subject to the company's policies like any other director. And companies do typically have, and certainly anyone we're advising would have, robust policies saying that information about the company is confidential and cannot be disclosed to third parties without the company's consent, period. And in particular, you would hope to have and would have robust policies on the board level that says board deliberations and information shared with directors, that stays in the boardroom. That is confidential. And there is no magic law, certainly not one that Delaware recognizes, that says that if you work for an activist fund, and you're on a public company board, you can just share that information freely and use it for whatever purpose you'd like. That is not the law. And if you think about it, it's pretty common sense because, I mean, just to use a thought experiment, if a director gets elected to the board of Coca-Cola and also happens to be the CEO of Pepsi, I understand that might not happen for other reasons, but does anyone think that that director can take all of Coca-Cola's confidential information and share it with Pepsi just because they have an employment no. arrangement with Pepsi? Of course not. Yeah. And there's no special body of law that gives activists a different rule. And in fact, when you join a board, you are subject to the same fiduciary duties as all the other directors, even if you were nominated by an activist, and you owe your duties to all shareholders, not just the activist shareholder. And the reason I think this is so interesting and so important is because when dealing with activists, companies often, they go back and forth on, there's always this idea that the company really wants the settlement agreement because it's going to get the standstill. It's going to get an agreement that the activists won't disparage them. But the activists get something out of it too. Because if it doesn't sign a settlement agreement, it will not be able to actually share information from the director that they get elected to the board with themselves right? Mm -hmm. They just cannot have that happen by simply winning a proxy contest. And I think that is hugely important in the leverage in the negotiations as these situations evolve, 
And that is one of the reasons that activists will settle instead of going to a fight because it's okay, something so, that they can extract. So let's let's uh, let's break that down a little bit more. So that's another one of the categories. How often is it that activists uh, sign NDAs as in settlement agreements that put an activist employee or the activist principal or somebody that works from the activist on a corporate board? Are NDAs very common in settlement agreements, even if maybe they're not disclosed? In 8Ks, or you know, like they're not disclosed typically in the press release announced in the settlement agreement. But if the activist gets on a board in a settlement, is there typically an, an NDA? It's a great question. And I think we should distinguish between the activist insiders that get on the board and individuals that they have found through their channels or through search firms that they've nominated and get appointed to the board part uh, of the settlement. You mean like- Outside directors that don't don't work at the fund. Yeah, independent directors. So let's start there because that's a little easier. So even if you have a settlement agreement where the activists and the company say, this great director, even though you suggested them, they're not an employee of yours, they're joining our board. Typically, that director would not share information with the activist fund. And Mm -hmm. frankly, many of those individuals do not want to share information with the activist fund, even if they were first found by the activist fund because Mm -hmm. they don't want to, within the board dynamic or even externally, be seen as an activist director, right? And so they sometimes disavow that relationship and are uncomfortable when the activist calls them. So the agreement would not say that person can share information with the activist that nominated them. Mm -hmm. But if Mm -hmm. you talk about an activist insider, then it comes down to whether the activist actually wants that information. Because remember, if the activist is getting that information, they are going to be restricted from trading and subject to the company's insider trading windows. And mm-hmm. so sometimes they still don't want it. But usually if the insider is on the board, almost certainly they're going to want the information. That's why the insider is there. And so then you would have a provision or a full confidentiality agreement that says that director can take confidential information from the boardroom, share it with the activist. But in return, activists cannot disclose it to anybody else. And the activist Mm -hmm. certainly cannot use it for any purpose. It has to use it for purposes of monitoring its investment. So Mm -hmm. that is a key point of a settlement agreement. And actually, what I would say is for anyone that is following activism situations closely, this is something to pay attention to. Because you know the press... I love you guys. But sometimes the reporting on the victories can be very high level. And you say, oh, you know, two people get added to the board. But if you look at the information rights, you can often understand what is actually the relationship between the person that gets appointed and the activist fund. And if the activist doesn't want information rights, you can often assume that maybe it's because they're not in it for the long term and they want to trade out fairly soon. That is fascinating. I had a, I just got to relate this. I find it funny story I heard at the NACD conference last year, and there was a director out of a, let's put it a high level, very large energy company that settled with an activist. And these two directors were put on this board of this energy company by an activist. And that activist, the director said that one day the activist called them up and he wanted to know what's going on. You know, this company had launched kind of a strategic review of a division. And I think the actors want to know if it was going to be sold. That director immediately said, I can't talk to you, put the phone down and said that disclosed to the entire board 
that XYZ activist called me up. I didn't say anything. And I hung up, hung up the phone on them. And these were directors that, based on my understanding, were put on the board by the activists. So it's quite interesting, you know, independent outside directors, I guess, typically do not have NDAs, but you can see why you want an NDA if you're a, a director that actually works at the fund and you're on the board. I mean, as a director on the board, you already have a fiduciary duty to the company and you're subject to these the company's trading rules, I suspect. So it seems like it would make sense to sign an NDA. And you put a director on the board and you work with the fund, that activist, I guess it's in it for the long term. You know what I mean? It's like while the person's on the board, they have restrictions, no, on buying and selling. Right, right. And I actually, I think the story you told is really illuminating because it actually happens more than people realize. And that's why when we advise boards and they do have activist-nominated directors, but not actual activist insiders, we say it would be a big mistake to treat those people as the enemy or treat those people as somehow very different. Because the best thing you can do, especially in a time when activist battles often span multiple years, is bring those folks into the fold, convince them that you were doing the right thing, show them all of the deliberations that they couldn't see from the outside, and they may well be allies in future years if the activist continues to say more needs to be done, those people turn around and say, I don't know, I'm in this boardroom and it seems like this is a great board. It can be very, very powerful. Yeah. I mean, just to go back to, I guess, one other point that you're making about when we started this conversation with directors, when the, the activist employee gets on the board and the employee is trying to get information. And let's say it's a principal, actually, not an employee, but the principal gets on the board. And you know, I'm trying to imagine a situation where maybe just the active, it's a very tiny activist fund. It's the principal. He's making the portfolio investment decisions. He gets on the board in an election that goes the distance. I remember reading somewhere about you can't bifurcate a brain. That person doesn't need to sign an NDA. In many ways, it's like he, he would have to share the information with himself, no? you know, as the principal. So I know, I'm just curious how like Delaware courts are viewing a situation when it's a principal gets on the board. So I still hold by what I said. And I think you just articulated is a very good point. It's this idea that you're one person. So if one person is a fiduciary of two places, right? He's on the board of the public company, but he's also the principal. So when we say principal for the listening audience, we mean like the Carl Icahn equivalent at their respective right. hedge fund. So if Carl Icahn is on a public company board and Carl Icahn also obviously controls his hedge fund, what I believe the law is saying is the mere fact that Carl Icahn exists and can't split his brain means that it is not in and of itself a breach of the confidentiality policy of a company that Carl Icahn Enterprises has the information because Carl Icahn has it and Carl Icahn has one brain. Mm -hmm. To be very clear, I do not think that the law says just because Carl Icahn is one person and has one brain, Carl Icahn can then share that information with everyone else at Carl Icahn Enterprises, and then Carl Icahn Enterprises can disclose it or do with that information whatever it wants. I think that would be the leap too far. Mm -hmm. So I would mm -hmm. not read the notion that just because a fiduciary is on the board, it means the fiduciary can do whatever it wants. That would make no sense because the fund is not under any obligation of confidentiality to the company. So it would be a huge perversion to suggest that Carl Icahn, because he exists and has one brain, can take all that information, 
use it however he wants and disclose it. And the company has no recourse. I mean, I don't think anyone would think that's a reasonable reading of Delaware law. That's fascinating. So, okay. So I have one other NDA subject I want to just go over and it's involving another kind of high profile NDA situation that I, I don't know if I've seen anything like this before, but maybe there are lots of examples. I just can't think of them. But so, you know, as you know, Disney's under attack by not one, but two activist investors, Tryon seeking to elect two directors and Blackwell's another fund seeking to elect three directors. And what does Disney do? They sign an NDA confidential agreement with Value Act, which is run by Mason Morfitt. And Valiac seems to have been uh, in a number of situations, comes in as this kind of white squire defensive investor. And they, you know, they put out the press release saying that Disney has an information sharing agreement with Value Act and has agreed to consult with Value Act on strategic matters. So anyways, maybe talk about it. Like, I guess this is a situation, I would love to know how long that confidential agreement with Value Act goes on for. Presumably, Value Act is prohibited from trading since they have this NDA with Disney. I don't know. Have you seen a situation like that where a, you know, a company, it seems like they're trying to show that this very well-known, reputable investment firm that is liked is supportive of Disney's strategy and will be that they're reaching out to a, an important investor and they have an investor on their side. Kind of a, I feel like it fits into this kind of white squire category and is intended to kind of help defend them against these more hostile activists. But I don't know. What do you think of that whole situation? Yeah. I mean, I think the way you're describing it makes a lot of sense as a good framework for understanding it because the whole argument that activists will make about why should they be on a board or why should their individuals that they found be on a board is, well, we need a shareholder perspective in the boardroom, right? Some notion that the directors, even though they own shares in the company, are not as aligned with the long-term shareholders as they are, which you know we can debate, <laughs> but that's the idea. So the reason that you might attempt this as a defense is you say, well, look, we're getting a shareholder perspective. We have this confidentiality agreement with a very prominent activist, and therefore you should trust that this board is getting that perspective. Now, I would just say, I don't think it's a very common approach. And mm-hmm. I don't think it's without risk to do it. I actually, I don't really like this approach very much. I think you could always find circumstances where you say it makes sense. But one reason it helps to actually have the information sharing be through a director that is actually on the board mm-hmm. is that the director has fiduciary duties to all shareholders, right? If you just enter it into NDA, that activist doesn't suddenly have any duties and creates a situation where they get the benefits of being a director without really any of the obligations right, to consider the interests of all shareholders when you are using that information. So Mm -hmm. this is almost like, if you think about it, it's akin to a resolution that gives an activist an observer, right? Or sometimes Mm -hmm. you'll see in settlements, oh, we'll invite this activist to these kinds of meetings at the board. It's basically fundamentally board access. It's just another way of giving an activist board access without putting them on the board. And I think you can do that, but I would use it very sparingly because you have lots of often larger institutional shareholders who have been in your stock for a much longer amount of time, probably have larger positions and don't have that kind of access. So I don't know that they would be so crazy about those kinds of arrangements. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I was going to say that when Value Act is coming as a white squire investor in other situations, I'm thinking most recently at Salesforce when Elliott targeted and before that Exxon when uh, Engine Number One targeted it, they got a director on the board as part of their support agreement, I guess, <laughs> to try to fend off the activists. In some cases, they were more successful than other cases. But yeah, this is kind of an, another, an unusual circumstance, but I'll be keeping a close eye on it and kind of monitoring the situation as it proceeds. So we are pretty much out of time. Lena, is there anything else you wanted to share, perhaps NDA related, before we jump? Yes. One thing, since we have been talking about confidentiality agreements, it would be a form of ultimate betrayal if I spent an entire podcast talking about this and didn't mention my partner, Igor Kierman, who literally wrote the book about NDAs, M&A and Private Equity Confidentiality Agreements is his book. I would say this book, which I read when I first started at the firm, is one of the most user-friendly, plain English explanations about the art of negotiating a confidentiality agreement, and frankly, about negotiations in general. And it's the kind of book that if any of your listeners are thinking about going to law school, it's a must read because if you love it, you should become a lawyer. And if you don't, maybe save your tuition. But Igor was the main corporate partner on the Vulcan materials defense that I shared at the top of this podcast. And he helped share the strategy in that case. And he's the person who taught me how as a lawyer, you just never take any word for granted. You have to be so thoughtful about everything that you have your client agree to because it could have unintended consequences. So if he listens to this, since he is the godfather of NDAs, I hope he thinks I did justice to his favorite subject and mine. Well, I've talked to Igor Kerman a, a few times and we've never discussed NDAs. So maybe the next time I give him a call, it'll be a subject that we should chat about. So that's great. Okay, we are out of time. You'll be listening to the Activist Investor Today podcast with Ron Oral, and we've been speaking to Lena Teitelbaum of Wachtell Lipton. Thank you, Lena, for taking the time. This was really enlightening. Thanks so much, Ron.